0: We've talked about religion and we've talked about mythology, but now if we're really going to dig in, we need to talk about the Jungian archetypes. And this is an overly exhaustive topic that we could spend literal years on because we could go through all of the different things that he talked about with dream interpretation and all the rest. For the purposes of our discussion today, We're going to talk about the big ones the shadow, the anima animus, the ego, the threshold guardians, and the tricksters. So let's talk about Jungian archetypes on today's episode of Project Shadow. Everyone, how are you doing today? My name is Charlie. You might know me better as sci-fi fantasy writer C. E. Dorset, and I'm happy to say that the second chapter of *Dance the Ghost Shatter Me* is now up for people to read. If that happens to be something that you might be interested in. Okay, so today we're going to be going forward with our 201, looking at well, all the intricacies of world building, and finally we're going to be talking about the Jungian archetypes. I'm sorry if I sound a bit distracted. This is such a big topic that I keep second guessing the the way I want to approach this because we could honestly, like I said in the intro, talk about this forever. So let's start with what is an archetype? And I am not going to be academic about this, because that can be really problematic and misleading for our purposes. I'm going to be talking to you as an author, because I'm a writer, and I think that's more than likely why you're here, is either to improve your storytelling in a role-playing game, or in a book, or screenplay, or something like that. So what is an archetype? Well, we have to begin with, an archetype is not a stereotype. So we're going to be talking about the anima and the animus, the shadow, the ego, the threshold guardians, the tricksters. And for some of you, those words may have meaning that you're ascribing to them automatically in your head. Well, a trickster has to play tricks on people. No, no, they don't. You see, you can easily get lost in the name. The Threshold Guardian stands at the borders of the Threshold and says, You shall not pass! No, not necessarily. That's not always how they work. And this is where archetypes become very dangerous for authors to start playing with, and why we didn't talk about them all that much in the 101. Archetypes are just that. They're images. They are the latent notions in the back of our mind. They're pre-made characters that already exist within us that can be called up to connect the reader to the story, to fill in the reader on some of the things that go unsaid in the story. They're a psychological trick that we can play on ourselves and our readers to get a better understanding of how the story should work. Now, archetypes come in all shapes and forms. We can talk about how our characters are archetypically the gods of Greece. So this character is an Apollo and that character is a Dionysus. And that's a perfectly logical way to use archetypes. You could even expand out characters from, say, Star Trek into an archetype and say this is a Spock or a Kirk or a McCoy that's possible to do. But remember, we're talking about a container for psychic energy, not, not a list of criteria for what makes someone that thing. And I know I've probably lost some people when I said psychic energy. So I think we're going to have to unpack that just a bit because Psychic doesn't always mean, I have mind powers and I'm reading your thoughts. It's a really important term, especially for us writers, to understand. Now, when I say that a character is a vessel of psychic energy, I'm sure that brings up all manner of thoughts in your head as to what that, what that could possibly mean. Is that character a mind reader? Are they going to make things float around the room? Can they cause things to burst into flames with the powers of their mind? Are they going to read a crystal ball? Now, our characters may be doing some of that, especially if we're writing fantasy or paranormal or supernatural fiction. But generally speaking, when we're talking about psychic energy as a writer, we're not talking about those kinds of psychic energies... We are talking about the subtle energies that actually work inside our minds, that basic power that flows through all of us, that has certain characteristics, certain flavors. Some of these are easier for us to recognize than others. So let's start very simple. Love is a psychic energy. You know it when you feel it, but it's kind of difficult to express in words. Hate is a psychic energy. Compassion can be a psychic energy born through specific practice. Pity is a psychic energy that looks down on others. These emotions are the basic building blocks of liminal energy, of this psychic energy that we're talking about. Now, I'm not talking about spooky stuff here. Please do not think that I am talking about spooky stuff. What I'm referring to is the energy in our mind, the energies that we experience in ourselves, in others, and that need to be present in the characters of our stories if they are going to come alive in the minds of our readers. If we are not doing everything that we can to imbue them with these psychic energies, then they will remain flat on the paper. Now again, I know what that sounds like. We're making artifacts all Warehouse 13 style. But that's not what we're talking about at all. This is where the archetypes come in. So before we get into Jung and some of the deeper topics at hand, let's talk about the Greek gods, because I think everybody is familiar with them. When I say Venus or Aphrodite, A certain image comes into your mind, yes? She's a seductress. She's beautiful. She has the powers of love flowing through her. She's in a bad marriage with a brutish man who doesn't respect her. She got into an argument with a couple other goddesses over a Golden Apple that caused the Trojan War. All of these things and many more may have popped through your head when I mentioned Aphrodite. That is a collection vessel. All of those energies just got bound up together into a simple composite in your head. A vessel that contains love, lust, desire, and desirability. And we named that Aphrodite. So, when you invoke Aphrodite in your work and create that sultry, sexy character who is all about bringing people together and having the love, whether that's the romantic love or the, you know, body love, you are invoking the energies of Aphrodite. When I say Apollo, a lot of things may have gone through your mind because there are so many conflicting stories about Apollo, but they all share one theme in common. Apollo is a character who gets stuck in his own head. Whatever he thinks is right is right, and he will pursue that at all costs, whether that's for the betterment or for the worst. He will proceed after his goals until he gets what he set out for. All of that is characterized by Apollo. Now, you may see him as a much drier figure, especially when compared and contrasted to a Dionysus. But those are all the container energies that we're talking about here. So you don't have to hold on too tightly. Remember, if you're just writing stereotypes, well, the character is gonna be flat no matter how fleshed out that stereotype is. So don't do that. The first archetype we're gonna talk about is the ego. Now, the ego is one of the hardest ones to pull off and to pull off well. So if you remember from our Worldbuilding 101 that we did, and if you didn't get a chance to listen to that, I'll put a link to the Spotify playlist down in the show notes. The ego is virtually synonymous with the entity that is being transformed. This is one of the places that often goes wrong when people talk about archetypes and how they are associated with our fiction. The ego in only a few rare circumstances is actually the hero of our story. (laughs) They will very often be an aspect of the ego, but They are only an aspect of it. So what is the ego? The ego is the I. It is the subject. It is the thing to which everything else in our story is a manifestation of its unconscious and conscious mind. The ego is that which answers the question, I am. In a well-written Star Trek series, the ego is generally the Federation, the ship, or the station on which the story takes place, not the characters themselves. So it's not a lie when Kirk or Picard says these are the voyages of the Starship Enterprise. That is the introduction to the show, drawing a circle around the ego. The vast majority of what we're going to be talking about is what happens to the crew of the starship enterprise now we will be talking about how it interacts with the world and the galaxy and all the other races that we encounter along the way but we are not dealing with uh, earth politics even when Deep, deep space nine went to earth the topic the ego was still deep space nine our focus characters were always Cisco and Odo, even though we saw other things that were going on under Earth. Even Nog, when he was brought in, was brought in as a part of a fragment of the group mind of Deuce Nine, and showed us how it was interacting with the rest of the outside world. Be very, very careful not to draw this circle too small or too broad. If the ego in your setting is too small, then the story will feel very claustrophobic and narcissistic. Now, that can be perfectly all right if you're writing a short story or flash fiction. In fact, in the shorter the fiction, the smaller the circle will be. So, in H.P. Lovecraft's Outsider, the circle is drawn around the outsider, the person who doesn't feel like they belong, the monster that can't go out. That's the circle. It's very tight. It's very confining. And it allows for the claustrophobic nature of that story to work and work quite well. In the works of Robert E. Howard, Conan or Bran Morn or Solomon Kane is generally this character. And you can kind of see this in works like the witcher because they are the primary character in which we are concerned but we need other characters and show how that gets expanded out tolkien doesn't have a singular I in any of the books and this is what can make his work a little bit hard to get into for some people the circle the ego is the entire world and so everyone is merely acting as an aspect of the group consciousness and it makes the stories feel a bit impersonal and detached so bear that in mind when you're creating your characters and when you're creating your world itself but the ego is very important because everything else will be related to it in some way And that relationship determines everything else. In very basic terms, the shadow is that which the ego cannot see. And we again talked about the ego in the 101. Where this often goes wrong is like... With the hero being seen as our ego, our villain is seen as our shadow. The villain may be the cause of the shadow state. The villain may be a symptom or an aspect of the shadow state. But again, unless you're writing a very simple moralistic tale, and there's nothing wrong with that if you are, but unless you're drawing a very simple moralistic tale, the villain is not your shadow the shadow should represent all of the things that the character our hero our ego cannot see themselves doing everything that they have rolled out lives in the realm of the shadow a very good example of this is on deep space 9 who did this so so well it's section 31. section 31 is the exact opposite of everything ...that Deep Space Nine is. It's the exact opposite of everything that the Federation is. Whereas the Federation does everything, for the most part... ...in the open... ...and by the book... ...Section 31 lies... ...deceives... ...and does everything that it can... ...to just be a clandestine organization. If you were to look at... ...something like... ...Avatar the Last Airbender... ...which does this so wonderfully well... The Ego actually covers all of our main characters, so that would be Aang, Sokka, Katara, Toph, and Zuko. And our Shadow is a lot of the other characters. So that would be the Fire Lord, that would be Azula, and all of the villains that come out of the Fire Nation. In fact, you could say that the Fire Nation itself, in most respects, is the Shadow. Because they are everything that the Avatar is not. They are everything that the Avatar's side is not. They're cruel. They're vindictive. They're hateful. They're genocidal. They're willing to do anything, no matter how repulsive or destructive, just so their side can win. They're everything that Aang cannot imagine. And thus, they provide such a strong counterpoint to him and the ultimate challenge to him because what can Aang do other than kill the Fire Lord for this to end what other option does he have and I know if you've watched it you know what he did I'm just trying not to do spoilers in here in case people haven't seen it because it's up on Netflix so if you haven't seen it go watch it it is a masterpiece of good writing but because he is the exact opposite He makes for a powerful villain. The Empire in Star Wars shows where this concept can really fall flat. The The Emperor is not exactly the opposite of Luke Skywalker in The Rebels. The Empire itself kind of is in that you see that the ego is wrapped around this loose idea of being a freedom fighter or standing for freedom and liberty. And... The Empire is about control, domination, and fear, but yeah, it's not going to be exactly that easy. And that's kind of why the Empire feels flat. Vader could be seen as an aspect of the dark side because he is primarily the main adjutant of the dark side. But he plays more of a threshold role, which we'll talk about in a little bit, than he does a shadow role. He is not exactly the shadow of Luke or any of the other characters. He is that which stands in the breach. So be careful how you draw these circles. And remember to make them opposed to each other without being cartoonishly so. Because if a cartoon like Avatar, which, with its simple, straightforward sense of humor, can pull this off, you definitely can in your fiction. Tricksters and threshold guardians are characters that are there to impede and give challenge to our heroes. That's it. That's all that is meant by these things. A trickster will try to trip up our hero. A threshold guardian will try to stop them. So, Han Solo is a trickster. Chewbacca is a trickster. Just to continue using Star Wars since it's the last thing that we talked about. Obi-Wan Kenobi and Darth Vader are threshold guardians. They stand on the limit between the known and the unknown. And they try to lure our main character to one side or the other. They try to keep them on the side that they feel is best. That's really what these characters are. Trying to make them too literal. Like, they don't have to be the Red Skull in Infinity War. They don't. They could be. But they don't have to be. That character is definitely a threshold guardian. He literally guards a threshold. And yes, if you literally guard a threshold and that is your sole function in the story. Yeah, this is one of those few times. Yeah, just put a circle around them. There they are. That's a threshold guardian. But a well-constructed threshold guardian should be so much more. Gandalf in the Lord of the Rings series is a brilliantly designed threshold guardian. He stands between the humans and the Ainur. He has seen the beginning. He has seen the end. He knows where everything came from. He was there at the beginning. He fought in the war when Melkor led his revolt. He remembers the first age. He was there during the war with Melkor and the giant and the dragons. He was there as Sauron rose to power, and we have the Second Age and the Great War that defeated him. And he is still here in the Third Age, struggling to make sure that this limit is not crossed. And yes, he very archetypally and stereotypically has his Threshold Guardian moment. I mean, it's it's infamous by now, right? You shall not pass. I, mean, I, I quote that a lot because it is the archetypal Threshold Guardian. But it's more than just stopping the Balrog from catching the others. He is the gate to wisdom. He is the gate to knowledge. He guards the Threshold that tricks Bilbo into coming through. He guards the threshold that starts the whole thing off. If he hadn't gotten Bilbo to go along, Bilbo would have never found the ring, Gollum would have kept it hidden under the mountain, and the events of our story may have never happened because he guarded the threshold. He guarded the gate, he opened the door, and he let them through. Sometimes your threshold guarding is quite literally Fluffy from Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone. A dog that stands at a gate and keeps people out. Because literally, he's a threshold guardian. But Iroh from Avatar The Last Airbender is a brilliantly constructed threshold guardian. He has such wisdom and power and strength. He knows things that he is slowly and carefully sharing with others and making sure that they have access to these powers, to this world that he has to share with them. And through his control of that knowledge, which is the gate, he allows Zuko to find the path that he needs to walk. He subtly helps Aang and all of the other characters find where they need to be. Tricksters are very simple. They stand in the way. You have to pay Han Solo to get past him. You have to pay off or trick a trickster to get past him. And that's all they are. They're an impediment on the way, and they're very simple to write. Even though a lot of people overcomplicate them because, well... Let's face it, they're the fun characters to overcomplicate because who doesn't like writing a good trick? Who doesn't like messing with our characters? That's why I spent more time talking about the Threshold Guardians, but if you want me to do another episode where I talk more about tricksters, I will gladly do it, but it is what it is. Last but not least are are anima and animus. So the anima is the projected female from the male uh, psyche. And the animus is the projected male from the female psyche. So they are idealized forms of what is masculine and feminine. Now, we could say that there should be an animum between them. Because, you know, me and my distrust of binaries... That there should be an anima, an animus, and an animum somewhere in the middle. Where we have a neutral spirit. But for now, let's just stick with this dyad, shall we? So, the main role of this is to reflect back in a female character what people expect to see. Now, this is difficult to do without falling into stereotypes. So... We have to do our stories very carefully, writing our characters so that they're fully fleshed out. The same thing with our male characters, it's very easy to stereotype them as well. So, the question that you have to ask if you're wanting to embody these characters into your world is what is ideally feminine in this setting and what is ideally masculine in this setting? And if you're like me, What is ideally androgynous or non-binary in this setting because I feel that that needs to be there too. And then don't linger on it too long because the longer you linger on it the closer this gets to objectification and you need to avoid that. But this is also a mask that has to break because your male character, say you're writing a romance, your male character will project his anima onto the female character and she will project her animus onto him. And it's only love when they realize that that projection is a lie and they see through the lie and now they can see each other for who they are until you get to that point they're not actually in love they're in infatuation so be very careful be very careful not to stereotype that's why i save them for last because In a lot of ways, I feel that they're the most outmoded idea in Jungian psychology. But again, if you want to talk about them more, we can do that on a future episode. I hope this has been helpful. If it has, and you want to know more, let me know. In the show notes, you'll find a link to the voice message system. Keep it short, keep it clean so I can use it on the show. I would love to hear from you. If you have a dollar, you can pass my way down in the show notes. You'll find a link to my Patreon, my coffee and listener support. Thank you to everybody who does that. It really does mean the world to me, especially right now with everything being so tight. But if you don't have the money to give right now, or you don't feel like giving that's that's fine. But consider sharing something that I do with others that helps out more than, you know, the hardest thing to do in this world is to get people to know that you exist So anything you can do to help with that, you are a golden, blessed person in my book, and I am forever grateful. Alrighty. If you want to hit me up on social media, I am C.E. Dorset on Twitter and Instagram, and you can find links to everything that I do over at ProjectShadow.com. Thank you so much for listening, and remember, Black Lives Matter, Black Trans Lives Matter, a whole new series of atrocities has been committed in our country, and we need to fix them as quickly as we possibly can. Not that people are listening, but we need to shout louder and make them listen. And I hope you have the courage to ride your dreams into reality. And until next time, don't forget to have the fun. Bye.